Voices Radio Show, Western Canada's only radio program on animal advocacy and compassionate living. This is 100.5 FM Co-op Radio CFRO on unceded and ancestral Tsleil-Waututh, Musqueam, and Squamish territories in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Today is Friday, December the 3rd, 2021. I am your host, Allison Cole, and I am joined here today by my co-host, Elise Jacobson. Hello. Welcome to the show, Elise, and everyone else. Today we have one feature interview, and it's going to be a good one. We'll be conversing with longtime health and vegan advocate, Glenn Mertzer, who is known for authoring a number of books, including co-authoring Mad Cowboy with Howard Lyman. He has written a trilogy of books on health with the delightful chef AJ, and one of those books that we will be discussing today is called Own Your Health, How to Live Long and Avoid Chronic Illness. That just came out recently. Glenn has also just authored an even more recent book called Food is Climate, a response to Al Gore, Bill Gates, Paul Hawking, and the conventional narrative on climate change. In this day and age, in a world of extreme heat, wildfires, floods, and pandemics, these books both come at the most appropriate time, you could say, where people utmostly need this information. And Glenn will be on the show today to deep dive into not only the health philosophy he lives by and encourages everyone else to for their own well-being, but we will also discuss the environmental and human-made disasters that we have been experiencing and how the animal agriculture industry plays a leading role in that. Of course, we will empower you with what you can do about it. That interview is coming up in about 17 minutes, so please do stay tuned. And today, Elise and I have been chatting about the Amazon rainforest, haven't we, Elise? Yeah, there was this very interesting article published yesterday in Veg News that was written by journalist Anna Stadostinetskaya, and um, it's about the impact of leather production on the Amazon rainforest. So the article starts out with um, this statement, more than 100 fashion brands have been linked to deforestation in a new report compiled by Slow Factory, which is a nonprofit, with data provided by research group Stand Earth. While the cattle industry has been the top driver of deforestation in the Amazon region, the link between leather and deforestation is less known. The group examined data from public or government sources, including 500,000 rows of customs data, websites, and annual reports, to find that due to a lack of transparency in various supply chains, leather products sold by more than 100 companies, including Zara, Asics, Adidas, and Clarks, could contribute to deforestation. Quote, the Amazon rainforest is fast approaching the tipping point of irreversible ecosystem collapse, according to scientists, the report states. We are calling on the world's leading fashion brands to act immediately to protect the Amazon rainforest, its people, and our global climate future. The article goes on to talk about how there is just generally a lack of oversight and a lack of transparency in the leather industry, including in regulatory bodies that are supposed to be overseeing their impact and 
I didn't yeah. know there were such regulatory bodies because when do we ever – leather is a sneaky thing. People think right. it's a byproduct of the meat industry, but in fact it's a co-product. Yes, exactly. Yeah. We've done a couple of interviews on – this is how I learned about leather. We've interviewed um, a couple of shoe store owners. One of them was our own Joanne Chang who left radio Animal Voices Radio to start the vegan shoe store, Nice Shoes, in Vancouver. Yeah. And uh, I guess as a vegan shoe store owner, owner you have to really – Really educate yourself and be informed. I know she knows her and her husband know a ton about, um, you know, about how these products are made and the fact that they really aren't, you know, you might hear the leather and the pro animal agriculture companies saying that they are that it's called greenwashing. They mm-hmm. often state that leather is more sustainable than using the chemicals that you use when making synthetics. But we'll talk a bit about that later. Yeah. What I find interesting about that. Um, about what that report states, making a call to action upon Mm -hmm. the world's leading fashion brands. Uh, I'd like, you know, that made me think that the world's leading fashion brands, like in the last five years, even this last year, they are quickly stepping up to the plate when it comes to dropping fur from their lines, Mm -hmm. for example. And we will talk about that later in the show, actually, go into more some news about that oh we will yes okay. absolutely yeah yeah okay yeah but even so like to i think this is this call to action is really going to it's going i think that there is a global movement that is shifting more towards like realizing that we you know we have this climate crisis now and we have a pandemic and we have animal agriculture people are starting to learn these things as they will on today's show our show is pretty much dedicated to these issues which makes it quite appropriate but it makes me i guess it it makes me anticipate and perhaps look forward to just more and more of these leading fashion companies like the ones you mentioned um, taking a stand and questioning about the ethics of where their products that they're making clothing with or shoes with or accessories with where that actually comes from Mm -hmm. and what they want to do about it. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, I think they're starting to realize that consumers are becoming more conscious of that kind of stuff and not accepting a lot of these traditional practices anymore. But I found something else interesting in this report. Apparently the leather working group, speaking of regulatory bodies, this is the leather working group is the world's leading nonprofit in environmental certification of the leather industry. But apparently they only link leather to tanneries and not farms or supply chains, which makes it incapable of guaranteeing that leather products are deforestation free. So that's kind of a huge area of oversight excuse me, oversight there. Um, Obviously, it's quite often cattle farms, right, and various uh, points along the supply chain that are responsible for terrible deforestation. Um, So, yeah, and it it goes on to say if you're wearing leather shoes, a leather belt, or carrying a leather handbag, it's highly likely that it was made from cowhide that contributed to the destruction of the Amazon rainforest. So, um, yeah, a bit of a bit of a bombshell there. I think it's one of those things, again, you, like you said, a lot of people believe that leather is sustainable environmentally, but it's becoming increasingly clear that it's really not. Um, but it, the article also, this article in Veg News, goes into some of the innovative 
uh, animal-free leather alternatives that are coming out in recent years. Obviously, on this show, we keep our finger on that pulse. We really tend to pay attention to um, these innovations that are mm-hmm. happening. We talk about them like it's almost on a weekly basis. There's one yeah. coming out, it seems like, because we are both like looking up what's the news for this week. And, right, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But it's amazing just in the last, I don't know, five, ten years, the number of different innovations that people have been coming up with in this area. For example, we've talked on the show about um, Pinotex, which is mm-hmm. a leather made from pineapple leaves, and that can be used as a, a byproduct of pineapple farming. You know, they, obviously the leaves normally go to waste, but you can make leather out of yeah. them. Um, recently, a couple of entrepreneurs in Mexico developed a vegan leather made from nopal cactus leaves. That's right. So, that was a, that was this year, I think. Yeah, yeah very recently. I remember that one. <laughs> yeah, apparently you can yeah. make leather out of mushrooms. I even saw a thing about um, uh, these this company that was making leather out of mangoes. That like was mangoes recent. That were going to waste. Yeah, yeah I think very we reported recent. on that recently. And then, and then there's other. I mean, you don't have. You know, we definitely have a culture that uh, you know has has sunk into the desire for something that looks leather, mm-hmm. leathery like. And then you showed me your bag today, which from afar, I wouldn't, I would think that sort of has the same kind of look, but what is it made out of? Elise? My, the bag that I'm carrying today is made out of cork and I actually love cork. Um, as a material for bags and shoes and that kind of thing. Actually, my wallet even has cork on it. It's very durable, very beautiful. Um, I find, yeah, it lasts a really long time and it's kind of, you know, watery. And it's not cork colored. It's matching matching your nice cardigan today. Yeah, this one is kind of yellow. (laughs) We're going to take a picture of you with your bag when I get a chance. (laughs) Yeah, it's uh, it's like a mustard yellow, and it's 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 quite lovely. Oh, and I thanks. think yeah, and I imagine that all of these cork products are made out of recycled corks. I don't know about that's no, what actually, it's actually um, no. cork is it comes from the bark of a yeah. certain type of tree. So yeah, yes, they just kind of um, yeah, and it's very renewable. Yeah. The tree doesn't is not affected when the bark is cut off. So so we need yeah, to start so. looking at you know alternatives like that, and I'm sure you'll be hearing more and more of them uh, if you tune in this week to yes. the show. Every week, we'll have your latest and greatest not leather product that we are going to um, tell everyone about. Hi. Hi. This is your big chance. We're here to present the cutting edge radio we want to hear about a program featuring just local Vancouver bands. No, not good for that. We have expert on gospel music. Our public affairs programs dictate the voices other stations will touch. No.
Well, we've got an event to share with you that's coming up this weekend. This Sunday, December 5th, from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., there's a volunteer work day at Rabbitats in Richmond. Rabbitats says, join us in helping out with important tasks at Rabbitats Rescue Sanctuary, such as cleaning, watering, and feeding the 250-plus rabbit residents. Also take this opportunity to get to know some fellow animal lovers. Drivers are definitely needed to get out to Rabbitats, so please post on their Facebook event page if you have a vehicle, if you're willing to drive others, and what city or part of the city you are in. Of course, passengers pitching in on gas is definitely welcomed. Uh, invite your friends because with more folks we can get more done. Yeah, they really need help. We just had uh, Deanna Ham, the manager of the Rabbitat Rabbitat Sanctuary in Richmond at this location. Yeah. We had her on the show, I think, about two weeks ago. So this weekend you can go to animalvoices.org and and do all my catch up and post that up and listen to that really good interview. So if you want to find out more about Rabbitats and their needs and that they really do need volunteers of all kinds, there's all different jobs, then, um, then you can tune in to that or just come to come to this event and i'm going to post yes. it on facebook in a little bit at animal voices dot, uh, animal voices vancouver yes awesome yeah you can find more information about this on their facebook event page or you know go to the rabbitats facebook page um so again that's this sunday december 5th 10 a.m to 2 p.m at rabbitats in richmond they could really use your help Uh, And remember, as always, if you have an animal-friendly event that you'd like us to share on the show, please send it to info at animalvoices.org, or you can also send us a message on our Facebook page at Animal Voices Vancouver. Thanks for the events. And now for the news. We have an update on the Fraser Valley flooding. We've been discussing this on the show over the last Mm -hmm. few weeks. There have been a lot of very sad animal deaths as a result of these floods. Um... Global News reports that farmers in B.C.'s flooded Fraser Valley continue to face challenges to repair and restore their properties and, quote-unquote, livestock. Um, Agricultural Minister Lana Popham said that, sorry, said at a media briefing Thursday with the drier weather and receding floodwaters, it will be critical for the removal of carcasses of animals who died in the flooding. She said, we know at this point there are 628,000 poultry birds reported dead, 420 dairy cattle deceased, and approximately 12,000 hogs. And also of note, there are 110 beehives that have been submerged. It's not yet known how many bees could have died in the flooding. So, really, just tragic and yeah. horrible. Do you, know, do you know what my uh, first impression was when I read that? Or I heard it on the radio first. I'm like, oh, I've got to look that up. Did I just hear about beehives? Mm. Do people care about bees dying or drowning? Right. <laughs> so, so in one way, so Lana Popham, our Minister of Agriculture, she didn't want to give away the numbers last week. She said mm. it would be too um, it would be too hurtful or whatever for um, Canadians to know the actual numbers numbers of animals that were dead and we wow. had some estimates last week that we gave so 600 they had said a hundred thousand chickens but mm. like I said last week that's not adding up there's 61 chicken farms that were affected and 
one farmer lost 40,000 chickens like that. So, you know, doing the math, right? Um, So it's interesting that she did put out those numbers, and I suspect that they're even higher. And then I actually, I applaud her too for speaking about the bees as well, because Mm. it, for me, this message is really about getting people aware, getting us, like, everyone in the lower mainland in Canada now are hyper aware Mm -hmm. of what, um, the damage that this flooding has been done every single day it's reported the animals the animals what mm-hmm. do you think do you think this is finally getting seeded into people's minds and now the bees so. as well yeah i hope so um yeah i hope it does get people thinking about this we talked about this quite a bit um on last week's show i think and um yeah it's it's complicated i don't know i think obviously people are cons- you know the farmers are losing a lot of money as a result of losing these animals. So, um, yeah, anyway, it's, it's tragic. It's hard to figure out what to say about it. It's really terrible. Um, but that story obviously is developing. It's ongoing. So we will keep on top of it and keep you informed. Um, in somewhat better news, top fashion magazine L is officially banning fur from its pages across its 45 editions and 46 websites worldwide, including its properties in China, the world's largest fur producing country. While 13 of its publications are already fur-free, including LUK, the media giant's move to officially end its promotion of fur will prohibit the cruelly sourced animal product across all of its editorial features, press images, runway, and street-style images, along with advertisements. For an additional 20 editions starting January 1, 2022 and the remainder on January 1st, 2023. The move announced yesterday at the Business of Fashion's 2021 Voices event in London will reach a total of 175 million readers worldwide. Elle's move aligns with a drastic shift away from fur. In recent years, more than 1,500 companies worldwide have committed to fur-free policies, including fashion giants Gucci, Yves Saint Laurent, and Valentino. Major retailers such as Neiman Marcus, Macy's, and Saks Fifth Avenue have also taken fur off their racks, as Allison alluded to earlier on. The COVID-19 pandemic has brought on a further reckoning for the fur industry, which packs wild animals together in filthy conditions, creating a breeding ground for the spread of disease. This fact was laid bare when mink on fur farms across Europe and the United States, as well as Canada, tested positive for the COVID-19 virus. After the COVID-19 mink catastrophe, which led to the mass killing of mink across Europe as a preventative measure to stop viral spread, British Vogue questioned its promotion of fur in a feature titled Millions of Mink Being Slaughtered in Denmark Proves Why Fashion Finally Needs to Disown Fur. While Vogue has yet to announce its own fur ban, animal rights group Humane Society International, which worked with L parent company to uh, Legardaire Group to implement its commitment, hopes that Elle's move signals a new fur-free future for fashion media. So this is kind of a big deal. Um, Elle obviously is one of the biggest fashion brands, fashion magazines in the world. And yeah, they're just completely removing fur from all of their publications online and off. And that includes advertisements. They won't advertise any companies. And that see, this fur. is what I meant about it's shifting. There's a global movement to shifting priorities right. into 
what we do and what we wear and how we use animals and how we either care for or destroy the planet. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And they L even released a statement, the senior vice president and international director of L, Valeria Basolo Lopez, um, stated for many years L has been engaged towards environment, sustainability, and ecology through regular features or special green issues. The presence of animal fur in our pages and on our digital media is no longer in line with our values nor those of our readers. It is time for Elle to make a statement on this matter, a statement that reflects our attention to the critical issues of protecting and caring for the environment and animals, rejecting animal cruelty, which I I thought it was interesting that she specifically made a statement about that, obviously acknowledging the cruelty of the fur industry. So, I don't know, it's obviously, I, I wouldn't necessarily hold up major fashion brands as paragons of um, <laughs> ecological living. But, but they're starting. They're, you say that yes. now at least two years from now, all the major fashion brands could be vegan. Maybe. And yeah, we can They all can have, they, they're all competitors. They all have to step up. When one steps up, everyone has to step up, which is what we've seen with the fur uh, retailers, not only retailers, but the designers. Yeah, right? it's definitely a step yeah. in the right direction. Well, thank you for that news, Elise. Uh, our feature interview today is with longtime vegan and animal advocate Glenn Mertzer. Glenn is a playwright, screenwriter, and author. He began his career as a stand-up comic in San Francisco before devoting himself to playwriting. He also wrote for network television for many years before stumbling onto a career writing books that advocate the plant-exclusive diet. Glenn has co-authored many books on the topic of health. And including Mad Cowboy and No More Bull with the Mad Cowboy himself, Howard Lyman. One of his latest books, Own Your Own Health, How to Live Long and Avoid Chronic Illness, is the third book of a trilogy on nutrition and health, co-authored with the very knowledgeable and entertaining Chef AJ. Glenn's most recent book is called Food is Climate, a response to Al Gore, Bill Gates, Paul Hawken, and the conventional narrative on climate change. In today's interview, we will delve into the two related topics of his latest books to learn about the impacts of what we eat on our personal health and the environment. And Hello, Glenn. Welcome to the Animal Voices Show. Hi, Allison. It's great to be here. Yes, I'm looking forward to this conversation because it's tying in, you know, it's tying in health and uh, animal agriculture's um, impact on the environment, and um, there's a lot of connections there, and you're, you've written about both of them. So thank you for coming on the show today. As I mentioned, I've been, I've been reading your book, Own Your Own Health. I'm looking forward to reading Food is Climate as well. I just found out about that book, and I was like, what? This is awesome. It's such perfect timing to have a book like that out. Uh, really important information there that needs to become mainstream knowledge. Can you start by telling us more about your background and how you, that came to weave into a world of caring and advocating for our own personal health, the animals, and the environment? Well, my background is just that I grew up middle class on Long Island into a uh, you know a regular uh, house with uh, uh, had parents and a sister and went to public school and I was a happy kid, but there was a lot of uh, heart disease on both sides of my family. I didn't know my grandparents. Three of them were dead before I was born. The other died when I was a few years old. Um, and 
On my mother's side, when I was a teenager, her two brothers died of heart attacks. One was in his late 40s, one was in his 50s. On my father's side, all the men seemed to die in their mid-50s. So I grew up feeling that, gee, I'm going to be middle-aged at about 25. And I didn't want to be middle-aged at 25. And I remember hearing the comedian Dick Gregory talk, talking about vegetarianism, and I got interested in it. I don't think I did much reading on it. I just sort of instinctively decided that it must be meat that's causing heart attacks. And indeed, there's been science proving that meat causes heart attacks since the late 40s. Um, and so I just announced to my family that I became a vegetarian one day when I was 17. How did they take that? Because that's when I became that's when I became vegetarian. <laughs> there you go. Um, my uh, my mother actually said to me, what took you so long to figure that out? And I said, well, what, what, what does that mean? And she said, well, when, before you were born, I was uh, resolved to raise you as a vegetarian. Um, uh, but the doctor talked me out of it. He said that your bones wouldn't form, wouldn't get be strong, and your brain wouldn't grow and you know, he had all kinds of reasons why it was unhealthy to be a vegetarian, so he scared me. So I didn't raise you as a vegetarian. That doctor goes down now in history as the first one to do harm to me, and it was before I was born. Um, but I was confused. I said, well, well Mom, why were you going to raise me as a vegetarian? You didn't raise Sheila, my sister, as a vegetarian. You're not a vegetarian. Dad isn't a vegetarian. Why were you going to raise me as a vegetarian? And she said, because... Glenn, when I was pregnant with you, you felt like a vegetarian. So, I, I, um, love, I love that story, Glenn, when I read it yeah. in your book. Because, it, yeah. I, do you believe it's true? That, I, I think it's true. <laughs> okay, because I, I, I've often said on the show, actually, that um, we are all born vegan. It's just that our parents start to give us animal products, right? It's, it's but, absolutely true, and that, that's really key. Uh, uh, a theme in Own Your Health. And by the way, I'll correct you here, it's Own Your Health, not Own Your Own Health, uh, the mm -hmm. book title. Um, but in Own Your Health, um, I make the point that it is, um, it's really a battle between science and culture, not between mm -hmm. science and science. People tend to think that there's a, that nutrition is controversial and they hear on the news once study uh, one day that says meat is bad and another study the other day another day that makes them think they can have some meat. In fact all the serious studies come to the same conclusion that all animal products are harmful. There really is no serious dispute within the scientific community. It's just like climate change. Mm -hmm. There's no serious dispute that we're facing global warming. So if there's no serious dispute within the scientific community that, that meat causes heart attacks, that dairy and meat cause diabetes and, and, and can cause cancers and so forth, then why, why do people think it's controversial? And the answer is because there's a fight between science and culture. All the forces, all the cultural forces from restaurants, to uh, people in agribusiness, to TV commercials, to just the, our history as a culture of being meat eaters. All the cultural forces 
tell us to eat meat and to eat dairy. And all the science tells us not to. It's science versus culture. You're right about that, and within culture also comes all the media messages, right? We are we are just blasted with television and radio ads and bus ads and magazines and websites, everything saying meat and dairy is, you know, is where it's at. And I think both you and I, Annalise here too, we've you know we've been so out of that picture for such a long time that it really it really you know when you're looking from a third perspective. It really seems weird when I see people eating all this stuff or when I pass by an A&W or a McDonald's and it just stinks really bad to me and I can see people chomping down on the food and it just like puzzles me, you know, like they haven't learned yet. But um, when you take yourself away from that situation, you can really reflect upon what is actually happening in our world and in culture, as, as you say as well. So what have your discoveries uh, been about the Western medical system and how it can be both effective and ineffective in certain circumstances? Well, I tell the story in Own Your Health about how my parents saved their, each other's lives. Right. Uh, my mother saved my father's life, and this is when they were in their 60s. Uh, my mother said uh, that she needed to go to the dermatologist. So my father drove her to the dermatologist. He waited in the waiting room. My mother went in to see the doctor. The doctor said, uh, what seems to be the problem, Dorothy? She said, it's, the problem is my husband. He's in the waiting room. <laughs> so uh, the, the dermatologist went out into the waiting room, so my father said, could you please come in here? And my father came into the room, and my mother blocked the door and said, see that thing on his cheek? He refuses to go to the doctor. He had a, a dark growth on his cheek. And my father hated doctors. He hated to uh, check things out. So the, the, the dermatologist said, we have to biopsy that. That looks scary. And he biopsied it, and it was um, melanoma. And it would have killed him. But they got it soon enough. It barely left a scar on his face, and he lived another 25 years. Um, So that was how my mother saved my father's life, by having him just do a small thing, go to the dermatologist and, if necessary, do a biopsy, check something out. People should do that. Uh, My mother then, a few years later, when they retired to Florida, she went to see her cardiologist because my mother had heart disease. And um, the cardiologist said she had a serious 90% blockage of her carotid artery, and he needed to do an emergency angioplasty. Mm-hmm. And my father, who was not a very woke, not a very woke guy, he said, "Don't do it. He's just trying to kill you. Don't do it. He's just trying to. He'll make money." And the the, the doctor got uh, outraged that my father was intervening, and uh, the. Doctor, uh, you know, started raising his voice, and and my 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 father said, "If you do this, Donnie, I'll divorce you." <laughs> so the doctor said, "Who are you going to believe, him or him or your doctor?" And my mother said, "Well, you know, I don't want to get divorced. We just got new furniture." <laughs> so so uh, she didn't get the angioplasty, that emergency surgery that she needed, and she lived till she was 99 without ever having a cardiac event. And that's because I told her what to eat, and in the last 10 years of her Mm. life, I did her grocery shopping, and she became a vegan. So uh, that doctor who was recommending the emergency 
surgery, he was not out of line. My, my father was arguably out of line in the way he, he worded things. But what the doctor was practicing was the standard of care. And my mother had a severe blockage. And uh, at least nine out of ten cardiologists in the same place would have made the same recommendation. But, um, you know, he didn't present the option of, well, why don't you try going on a low-fat plant-based diet? And that's what very few cardiologists will do. And in, in my mother's case, that was all she needed, although she was, she did have fairly advanced um, heart disease. But again, she lived to 99 without doing it. And, um, and so my father, I feel, saved her life because she could have died on the operating table. You know, and it's a, yeah. serious, uh, it's a serious operation. And then you could have stents put in and need to have them replaced. And, you know, you become a perpetual patient. So my father saved my mother from becoming a perpetual patient, even if he didn't do it in the most diplomatic way. Wow, those are such stories. And you speak about in your book about, you know, doctors learn the science of treating, but not, so treating problems being reactive instead of proactive. They're not... They're not so much into promoting health. Can you tell us why we need to be personally armed with knowledge about health and nutrition and why we need to be our own health advocates? Yes, and, and let me say that it really is shameful that we have the majority of doctors in this country, the overwhelming majority of doctors in this country, who know nothing about nutrition. They literally go to med school for four years and sometimes don't have a single course in it. And they, they, you know, it's not right that I should know more about nutrition than most doctors. I don't have any nutritional degree. I'm not a nutritionist or a dietitian or a doctor. And yet I know that I do. I know far more about nutrition than most doctors. And, and yet when I write a book, I always have to put in the beginning the disclaimer Please discuss this information with your doctor before making any decisions about your diet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and, uh, why not discuss it with your plumber? They have just as much medical, uh, you know, nutritional background. Why do we, you know, we make an assumption that doctors know something about nutrition because we know that nutrition is important to health. Well, they should know that too, and the medical school should know that too, and they should be taught it, but they're not. So there's this. You know, it, it, it's, it's really strange to live in a country in which people are trained to be doctors and know nothing, in, in many cases, they know nothing about the, what will affect your health more than anything else, which is what you put in your body you know, your fuel. I just have to interject and say I was so shocked when I read in your book that a doctor, um, you know, a very knowledgeable doctor, uh, with um, you know, with a good reputation, uh, went to treat your mom, and and you found out that she think that she thought that carrots have cholesterol. She did. And like that's and that blew my mind. Yeah, she was a good doctor who helped my mother with her blood pressure and other things, and she was a caring woman. But she thought there was cholesterol in carrots, maybe because both words begin with a C. I, I don't know what her reasoning was. But you know, when you're not taught. <laughs> Anything about nutrition, uh, this is what happens. 
Uh, and it's and now we have this COVID uh, uh, epidemic, and we have hundreds of thousands of Americans who have died. Uh, now some of them were were you know very old and sick anyway. And when you're when you're uh, you know 80, 90 years old, and you also have heart disease, and you also have uh, cancer, and then you get COVID. You know, it becomes unclear whether that should be considered a COVID death or, or a heart disease death or something else. But clearly, there have been hundreds of thousands of deaths because of COVID. Um, and, um, and it is, you know, and other people are dealing with what they call long COVID, these symptoms that, are, that have been affecting them for a long time. So it's, it's really been a terrible, terrible um, pandemic. And, uh, and yet, we know, we know with certainty that people's symptoms are much lighter and they survive much better if they're on a low-fat plant-based diet. We know that obesity is a major, major risk cause for death from COVID. And yet, does the Surgeon General ever say what I'm going to recommend to the American people, in addition to the vaccine, in addition to masking, what I'm going to recommend to the American people is to go on a low-fat, plant-based diet. He could have saved thousands of, of, of lives if he'd said that, but he won't say it because you have the economic interests of mm -hmm. the animal agriculture industry that, you know, and, and, and it would be politically risky to say it. And yet, you know, it's shameful not to tell the truth to the American people. We could save thousands of lives from COVID if people will go on a low-fat, plant-based diet. Here in Canada as well. Our co-host, Elise, has a question for you. Hi, Glenn. Elise here. Um, so you stated earlier, as well as in the book, that the science of nutrition is clear and indisputable on the fundamental issues, such as that fruits and vegetables contain antioxidants that protect you from cancer, that all flesh foods and dairy are full of saturated fat and cholesterol, and that saturated fat and cholesterol team up to create atherosclerosis and cardiovascular disease, um, and that Increasingly, the scientific community is accepting this, as well as the medical community. There are an increasing number of doctors who originally came from meat-based backgrounds, but they are now promoting a whole foods, plant-based lifestyle, um, acknowledging as well that meat consumption raises blood pressure to dangerous levels. So can you tell us a little bit more about this research within the science of nutrition, as well as some of these doctors who are starting to promote plant-based diets? Well, the, the basic research on heart disease started in the 40s with Ansel Keys, um, who did a study in Minnesota of businessmen and uh, heart disease and found cholesterol and saturated fat as the risk factors. Then he did something called the Seven Countries Study, um, the Framingham Heart Study, which has been going on for, I don't know, 60, 70 years now, um, has shown that people with cholesterol of under 150 never get a heart attack. Um, we've known the link between saturated fat and cholesterol for 60 or 70 years. It's just, you know, it's, it, it's such established science that it's, it's more solid even than the evidence that cigarette smoking causes lung cancer, and, and that's well-established. So these are well-established scientific facts. Um, 
And, and now, finally, we have a growing number of doctors um, who are discovering the truth about nutrition. And with the help of the Physicians Committee of Responsible Medicine, which has uh, promoted these ideas, uh, there's a group called the Plantricians Project. There's a group called the Lifestyle College of Lifestyle Medicine. And you have more and more doctors who maybe when they went to medical school they didn't learn nutrition, but they've learned it now. And they're, they're treating their patients differently. Uh, I, I tell in Own Your Health the story of a physician named Steve Lewenda who learned nothing about nutrition in med school. He himself was very overweight. And then he, um, he actually listened to an audio book uh, initially that, uh, that advised him to go on a low-fat, plant-based diet. And uh, he and his wife tried it, and he lost 70 or 80 pounds, and his health improved dramatically, and then he began practicing that way. So now when his patients come to his office, and they're obese, they have diabetes, they have autoimmune conditions, the first thing he talks to them about is their diet. And now he's, he's helping his patients. He says for the first years in which he practiced, while he, when he was overweight and sick himself, he said he never helped anybody. He would give them pills, and then they would come back needing pills for the side effects, and then he would give them pills for the side effects of the side effects. You know. And so um, you know, he was very frustrated practicing as a doctor the first, I don't know, four or five years until he came across this knowledge. And now he's very satisfied because he helps people. And, you know, he's not the only one with that story. There are hundreds of doctors, maybe thousands of doctors, who have this story that they have discovered the truth and they now practice medicine correctly. But you won't find one doctor in the world, not one, who was brought up in a, in a household of eating the low-fat vegan diet, who suddenly discovered the health benefits of sausages and now is recommending sausage and hamburger to his patients. There, there are no doctors <laughs> going the other way. There are no studies um, of people with heart disease where they say, let's, let's uh, intervene and let's give them sausage and meatballs and, and uh, cheese because everyone knows that that will kill them. So, you know, it isn't a, a controversial thing. It shouldn't be thought of as a controversial thing. It is settled science. We know with absolute certainty that meat and dairy contribute to heart disease, contribute to cancer. They're not healthy foods. They're not human foods. And so all we have to do is face the science and act upon it and, and eliminate animal foods from our diet. Well said, Glenn. <laughs> that was a great answer. Thank you. So we're, uh, we're going to be moving on to um, a different but still related topic because this is all about, you know, how food and what we do to the planet, what we do to ourselves, what we do to animals, how it all affects us globally and all together. It's all interweaved together. So I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but uh, here in British Columbia, we've been experiencing some really just wild weather this year. So we've had... I'm aware. You are. Okay. So yeah, we've been having... We don't... So this is the thing about BC on the West Coast is we're... People move here for the weather because 
because it's usually very mild as compared to, you know, the cold winters in middle in, you know, in the middle of Canada and everywhere else in the really hot summers. We have it mild here. We never, I had never heard of a tornado in, um, in British Columbia or Vancouver. And then we had one about a month ago, right where I live, apparently. Um, it, it's just been crazy. Uh, we had a, a heat dome in the summer. It killed many thousands of animals and even killed humans as well. We've had wildfires in the forests again this summer, and now massive flooding as never experienced before. So can you address the topic of climate change and the title of your newest book, Food is Climate, a response to Al Gore, Bill Gates, Paul Hawking, and the conventional narrative on climate change? Yes, the leading cause of climate change is animal agriculture. I report in the book of a published paper by... Dr. Silas Rao, that estimates at least 87% of greenhouse gases are from animal agriculture. Now, we never hear that in the media. We don't hear that from Al Gore and the leading climate spokesmen. They usually estimate more like 15 or 20% from animal agriculture. But I'll tell you a few of the things they're leaving out. First of all, they, they discount the methane that comes from cows and sheep and goats from ruminants. Um, and the reason they discount methane is that over 10 or 12 years, uh, the methane will, will uh, degrade into carbon dioxide. And so with a half-life of 10 or 12 years, even though methane initially heats the planet uh, at 120 times the potency of carbon dioxide, they take the attitude, well, yeah, but after 12 years, it turns into carbon dioxide. So instead of giving it a, a global warming potential of 120, sometimes they even give it as low as 20 because they discount it over 100 years or something. But, you know, carbon dioxide itself, every year half of it is sequestered by trees. It goes into the oceans, taken up by the ocean. So by the same token, we could say that carbon dioxide has a half-life of one year, and therefore maybe instead of uh, um, uh, lowering the methane GWP, maybe we should multiply it by 10 because it lasts in the atmosphere 10 times as long as the average carbon dioxide mo molecule. But the really honest accounting for methane would be 120 times carbon dioxide um, because that's the global warming potential when it enters the atmosphere. And then there's the f land use, land use, land use. You know mm -hmm. how real estate agents say uh, location, location, location? The most important thing uh, when you're looking at global warming is land use. What are we doing with the earth? Um, and uh, on the non-ice land surface of the earth, 40% of it or more uh, is devoted to raising animals. 37% of the land surface is used for grazing, and another 6% to grow food to feed to animals. So that's actually so that's 43% of the land surface. What if we didn't eat animals? Then, on that 6% that we grow grain for animals, we could eat the grain. Uh, and on the remaining grazing land, we could reforest. And if we reforested, we would sequester enough carbon dioxide to end this crisis, to get us back, according to a published paper, 
to pre-industrial levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. If we had a trillion more trees on the earth, we gave up the grazing land and just let it reforest, that would save the earth. And then there's the 70% of the earth that's ocean. And if we stop the industrial fishing, which is extracting all life from the oceans, we could have healthier, vital sea forests, which again will sequester carbon dioxide. And, uh, and we could, uh, you know, restore life to the seas and save the coral and save the fish and save the whales. You know, people don't think about it, but when, when whale poop uh, will help fertilize the ocean and give nutrients to the phytoplankton. And then when the phytoplankton are healthy and robust, they emit a chemical called dimethyl sulfide that rises in the atmosphere, bonds with water droplets, and forms clouds, cooling the planet. Now, nobody thinks of that when they get out their harpoon to kill a whale, but it's a web of life. We need to leave it alone. So we could leave 80% of the earth alone. We could leave the oceans alone by ending industrial fishing. We could still have shipping and pleasure craft. Let's just end the industrial sh uh, fishing. Leave the oceans alone. Let the oceans heal. Leave 40% of the earth alone. It's used for grazing. Bring back the forest. And then the crisis is over. It may take some decades, but that would end the crisis. We could draw down carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. That's the only solution to climate change. What we've been trying for 30 years to uh, uh, just go to clean energy, that's not going to do it. Uh, you know, solar power is good, but solar panels do not sequester carbon dioxide. We need trees and we need healthy oceans. Glenn, in this day and age, would you say that it's possible to be a meat-eating environmentalist? No, it's a contradiction. Once you're eating meat, you're doing the worst possible thing for, the, for planet Earth. Not to mention that all these zoonotic diseases that we're having these days, right? I mean, we're in a pandemic, and maybe you can speak a bit as well as how just uh, how the way that we eat could also prevent pandemics. Well, there are two theories about how we got this pandemic. One, mm -hmm. that which most scientists believe, is that it came from a wet market where dead animals and live animals were right on top of each other and being sold at a market in Wuhan, China. The other theory is that it came from a lab in which bats were brought into the lab and bats carried the virus. Either way, if we had left the bats alone and left the animals alone, there would be no pandemic. It, it, this was, there has never been a broccoli pandemic. There has never <laughs> been a zucchini pandemic. It's always bird flu, swine flu, this one from bats. It's always animals. Leave the animals alone. That's the solution. Leave the animals alone. Leave the oceans alone. Let the forests come back. You know, there's one place on Earth that we've left alone for the last, uh, I don't know, 30 years, whatever, and it's a, a, a forest now. It's called Chernobyl. Now, we, you know, it a nuclear reactor blew up there, emitting a lot of radiation, so 100,000 people had to get out of the town. But now, because it's been left alone, 
the forest is coming back, the wildlife is coming back, the biodiversity is coming back in spite of the radiation. So what we have to do is learn to leave enough of the earth alone that we can be saved. And we should do it without blowing up nuclear plants first. You don't have to blow up a nuclear plant. You just have to eat vegetables and fruits and legumes, mushrooms, nuts and seeds. Eat human food. Stop eating dead animals. Stop eating dairy products. And, and then we could end demand for these foods that are destroying the planet. Now, it's lunchtime here, Glenn, and you just even mentioning legumes basically has made me very hungry because you're talking about the foods that I love to eat. I've been eating, actually, I've been really going, like, whole foods these last few months, um, just trying out, uh, you know, I've been vegan for many, many years, but um, just doing a different sort of eating lifestyle where it's more about whole foods. I'm reading the recipes in your book, uh, 75 plus of which are created by Chef AJ. I really love her her food style, her food philosophy, and I imagine yours is much the same. I'm wondering if you, you can talk about, so, you know, you've, you've just given the message, we have to eat plant foods. So what do people do next, and how can they embrace the recipes that, um, you know, Chef AJ uh, gives in her book and basically the food philosophies that you share about what to eat? Well, to eat for health, the best thing you could do is have a diet of fruits, vegetables, whole grains, mushrooms, um, and legumes, and with a little bit of nuts and seeds if you want. And, um, and um, I heartily recommend to people to go to Chef AJ's YouTube channel where she often has uh, – cooking demonstrations, either her own or chefs that she brings on the show. This whole week, she's done a sh- uh, w- one show every day with chefs from my book, Food is Climate. Um, and each day, I've done a little two-minute lecture on, uh, on climate. So, uh, But going to Chef AJ's YouTube channel is one of the best things you could do, and she's highly entertaining. The other day, oh, she, yes. interviewed a twel- she interviewed a 12-year-old boy had written a book about best comebacks, like when people say, where do you get your protein? I saw that book. (laughs) So she's interviewing this bright, bright 12-year-old kid, and she asked him, do you have any brothers or sisters? And he says, yeah, I have an 8-year-old brother. And AJ says, and when's his book coming out? So uh, that's what AJ is like. She's very sharp, she's very witty, and she's very pleasant and and, uh, delightful to listen to. So if you really want a good way to, you know, uh, start making a transition to the vegan diet, I recommend the books that I've done with AJ, which are one is called Unprocessed, and we're putting out a new edition of that next year. Uh, she wrote a book on weight loss called Secrets Ultimate Weight Loss, and she has recipes in my book, Own Your Health, um, and... Um, uh, and she also contributed some recipes to Food is Climate. So going to Chef AJ is one great way to start mm-hmm. learning about how to eat a healthy vegan diet. Yeah, and I just wanted to say that, just to end with, you can't go wrong by following those recipes in your book because they're so simple. And as I think she mentions in there that um, all the ingredients, there's nothing that has a label, or if it does, there's only one ingredient 
ingredient to right. it, like a can of beans, for example. Right. <laughs> but mostly everything, it's just produce and spices that you can buy from any store. Uh, and the recipes are so simple that I just want to make them all because that's the kind of food I'm eating these days. And it's like so mouthwatering. A lot of sweet potatoes, they are so good for you. So thank you, author and activist Glenn Mertzer, who has joined us today to speak on taking power over our lives and health by embracing a plant-exclusive way of eating. It can heal so much in our personal health, the lives of animals, and the environmental crises that we are experiencing right now. You can find out more about Glenn's latest books, Own Your Health and Food is Climate, by visiting ownyourhealthbook.com and also climatehealers.org slash foodisclimate. These links will are also posted on our Facebook page, Animal Voices Vancouver. And also please check out Glenn's website at glennmertzer.com. That's G-L-E-N-M-E-R-Z-E-R.com. Thank you, Glenn, for your many years of dedication to our health, the animals, and humans. Have a lovely December. Thank you, Allison. It's nice to be with you. You've been listening to the Animal Voices Radio Show on 100.5 FM Vancouver Co-op Radio on the unceded and ancestral Tsleil-Waututh, Musqueam, and Squamish territories known as Vancouver, B.C., Canada. Be sure to tune in next week, Friday, December 10th at noon. It's our International Human Rights Day show, which is observed worldwide every year on December 10th. We here at the Animal Voices Show ask you to keep connected with Animal Voices via the World Wide Web. Our past shows can be listened to on our website at animalvoices.org. Past podcasts are also available on Apple Podcasts and Google Play, so you can subscribe to us there and never miss a show. Join our Facebook page and our Instagram, both at Animal Voices Vancouver. And if you want to get in touch, let us know how we're doing. Send along show segment ideas. You can send us a note on Facebook or Instagram, or send us an email at info at animalvoices.org. And yes, we are on Twitter as well at Animal Voices YVR. We need help here at Animal Voices. We're an all-volunteer-run radio show and podcast covering animal advocacy issues. If you are tech-savvy and know your way around editing audio, WordPress, or social media, please contact us at info at animalvoices.org if you would like to be part of the show. We also need people who know about animal advocacy issues or are willing to learn to be co-hosts on the show. Be a part of animal advocacy of the animal advocacy community by lending a hand or your voice for the animals. So to close the show today, we're playing a song I think our guest Glenn would like. It's funny and informative. This song is called Where Do You Get Your Protein? Composed and performed by Vegan Smythe. Stay tuned next for Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Thank you so much for listening to Animal Voices today. And remember to be kind to the animals. Where do you get your protein?